dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or savor a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am sharing an audio recording of an online seminar I attended from the Oregon Wine Board discussing Willamette Valley and its nested AVAs directly from their site. If you've blinked in the last three years, you might have missed the announcement of one of the Willamette Valley's newest AVAs. We've welcomed four just since 2019 from the northernmost point to the southern core of this diverse region. Then there's Willamette Valley's Chardonnay. The region seems to be settling on a signature style, but what's next? This seminar led by Master of Wine, Bree Stock, will feature a distinguished panel of discuss the new AVAs and what they mean for the Valley's flagship Pinot Noir grape, the emergence of a golden age of Willamette Valley Chardonnay, and what's on the horizon for Oregon's largest growing region. Enjoy the conversation. It's a bit longer than typical episodes, but I think it is worthy of you sticking around. Plus, there is some talk about Cabernet Franc. While you are listening, please take a moment to rate and review Exploring the Wine Glass. Ratings are now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Audible. Taking one minute of your time is the only way the algorithms will suggest Exploring the Wine Glass to others. Slancha. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, someday service, champagne specialist, and WSET level two graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Right into wine. So you um, I am David DeWitt. I'm the Trade Relations Manager here at the Oregon Wine Board. Thanks, everybody, for joining. I'm going to turn it over to Bree Stock. She's our Director of Education, and she is also a Master of Wine. She's got some friends here today that she'll be introducing, a great panelist of folks working here in the Lamont Valley. Great. Thank you, David. Um, welcome, everyone. We are going to dig in today to our first regional uh, seminar focus. We're going to focus on the Willamette Valley, and it's a new AVAs. We're going to touch a little bit on how an AVA is formed, the history of the Willamette Valley, and we are then going to dive into some of the hot trends uh, that we're seeing or that we're really excited about um, in the Willamette Valley today. Namely, Chardonnay. And we have um, one of the great Chardonnay makers in our valley on with us today. Um, I do have a few friends here. Um, so I would like to welcome Wynne Peterson Nedry from uh, Ribbon Ridge. She has RR Wines with her father, Harry Peterson Nedry, who is one of the founders of our industry. Wynne has had a long career in Oregon and also New Zealand and other regions and has really um, been specializing in Chardonnay for much of that time as well. So she's going to be our Chardonnay um, expert here on the panel today. Um, thanks for joining us, Wynne. I appreciate you being here. 
Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Julia Burke is also joining us today, and she is the Education Director uh, at Willamette Valley Wineries Association. And Julia is going to be um, giving you the rundown on uh, what you need to do to apply for a TTB, if that's something, um, an AVA in the TP, with the TTB, if that's something you ever wanted to do, which you can. Um, <laughs> so thanks, Julia. Thanks for having me, Brie. And last but not least, or we've got one more person, but we've got Andrew Smith joining us from Antiquum Farm. Uh, Andrew has been in the wine industry here in the Willamette Valley for many years as well. He's worked uh, primarily in the North Willamette uh, and is now in slight mid mid Willamette <laughs> in one of the new AVAs. Um, so Andrew's going to be running us through some of the um, key traits of what an ABA means to him and some of the uh, details and go into depth on what the new lower long term ABA um, brings to the Willamette Valley. Great to be here. Thanks. Well, Eugenia um, really doesn't need any introduction anyway. She's uh, been a lot in, uh one of the um, founding of our industry. She is uh, always present and always engaging here and is um, working with Jackson Family Wines in the Willamette Valley and um, is really one of our great mentors in this industry. So she will be on the line shortly. Well, with that, let's get started. Um, hopefully Eugenia will be able to join us um, momentarily and uh, we will dig into the seminar. So let's dig into the um, seminar for Willamette Valley. Oregon is expanding and as we increase in age and size, we are starting to define ourselves a little more with increased AVAs. We now have 22 AVAs in the Willamette, uh, in Oregon, uh, that winemakers um, either exclusively focus on or purchase from multiple regions and dig into the regionality of this uh, quite diverse state. Um, from this map, you can see fairly clearly the major geographical features of Oregon. Um, most of the winemaking and wine growing occurs on the western side of the state in between two mountain ranges, the Coast Range and the Siskiyou Mountains, which are a low-lying range that gives us a buffer uh, from the Pacific Ocean um, and helps protect some of the vineyards inland. The Cascade Range to the east of our valleys and growing regions is a much higher elevation um, volcanic range and that really protects us from all of the um, heat and um, wind that comes from the east as well, but much higher elevation um, so it doesn't really have uh, too much of an impact um, uh, coming in from that easterly direction. Uh, we are separated from Washington, which is our northerly neighbor by the Columbia River. Um, we rely on the Columbia River to bring moderation to the vineyards in those areas, um, which are the Columbia Gorge AVA, um, the Columbia Valley AVA, Walla Walla, and the Rocks District of Milton Freewater. Uh, like Washington, we also share AVA borders, uh, most of them with, with Washington. We have four shared AVAs uh, within the state, and uh, that's primarily along with the Washington border and then the Idaho border as well. And then we have California and Nevada um, bordering us to the south. 
getting into the Willamette Valley, which is our first ABA uh, in Oregon, created in 1983. Um, the Willamette Valley was originally um, founded in the mid-60s and has since expanded um, and has had much success with primarily one grape variety, but it's capable of growing many grape varieties um, at very high quality levels. So we're going to dig into Pinot Noir a little bit, Chardonnay, and also some other varieties that are taking hold. Um, as you can see here, we are expanding within the Willamette Valley AVA. So there's a, um, several nested AVAs within the Willamette Valley now, which we'll get into shortly, but I wanted to give you this image um, so that you can see that most of the AVAs are in fact um, nested in the north of the valley and Lower Long Tom, which is our newest, is in the south, um, down by Eugene. Uh, the history of the Willamette Valley, you're going to, the Willamette Valley has been around since 1965. Well, it's been around for much longer than that, but the Willamette Valley as an ABA itself was established in 1983. However, that creation of an AVA doesn't just happen. Um, vines were pl first planted here in 1965 um, and through the early 70s. The first Pinot Noir vines were planted in the Dundee Hills AVA and the Tualatin uh, Hills AVA um, and Shehalem Mountains AVA. So uh, multiple uh, founders were reaching out here, usually from um, exploring vineyards um, from California, often uh, with a background in UC Davis um, viticulture and enology, and really trying to find their place where they could seek out um, cool climate wine growing and high quality um, wine growing opportunities. So um, Charles Curry, David Lett, um, uh, Dick Erath all made their ways to the Willamette Valley in the early 60s um, and established vineyards at that time. Uh, in 1979, uh, the Irie Vineyards 1975 Vintage South Block Reserve Pinot Noir um, placed uh, amongst the top Burgundies at a wine tasting in Paris. And this really shined the attention or helped focus the attention of those in the area that were planting grapes at that time um, onto the grape variety Pinot Noir. And Pinot Noir plantings really started expanding uh, then in the 1970s, which is when you find um, the majority of the founding uh, wineries being established in the region. Um, 1980 brought um, the Steamboat Conference, which uh, some say is really why uh, Willamette Valley and Oregon Pinot Noir has really taken to the, um, you know, very fine, high quality in such a short time is because of the culture and community of winemakers and wine growers that are in the Willamette Valley here. Um, and when you could probably speak to this a little because you would have grown up with, with Harry um, really, you know, digging into the development of Steamboat and um, a compar bringing Pinot Noir comparisons together. So a community of people who really got together to um, bring their, their wines together to talk about them. Wynne, can you talk a little bit about maybe what the importance of Steamboat has been in the Willamette Valley? Yeah, you bet. Um, so way back when, when Oregon was um, kind of first emerging as a Pinot Noir focused region, 
the necessity was there for people to get together in a technical way to taste through a lot of wines and particularly um, put focus on those that they were having trouble with so that troubleshooting could happen with, within the larger community. It was always meant as a no, um, no press no media, um, nobody like that was intended to be there. It was supposed to be kind of a closed door analysis of people's winemaking techniques and then kind of an advisory um, group to help basically boast the whole quality of everybody's Pinot Noir at the same time with no judgment. So basically you would bring your most flawed wine or the wine that you had a question about, talk about everything that you could think of and, um, that steamboat group would really help everybody um, kind of raise the level of their Pinot Noir production. So um, it was always meant to be really communal. And obviously, as a young person, I didn't really sit in on the technical tastings, but it was also a community building type of um, location where people could enjoy the evenings together and really um, spend summertime together, but also you know, be there for a purpose of bettering their winemaking. Um, so that was always really important. It also corresponded pretty closely with the weekend of International Pinot Noir Celebration. So people that were in town from Burgundy or New Zealand or California were always welcome to join and bring their input. And since IPNC was the weekend before the weekend after, the weekend after usually, um, it coincided pretty nicely for people to just spend the week and immerse themselves in a lot of Pinot Noir for the the last weekend of July. Yeah, and you know, as as I recall as well, you know, being um in a Pinot Noir and Chardonnay region in Australia, you know, there was a lot of, you know, um community outreach and replication of steamboat from other regions as well. And um with time other regions were able to attend and submit their wines and um it sort of became a um global and broader uh Pinot Noir community that <clears throat> all began um I guess in the Umpqua Valley here in, in 1980. Um so uh really you know a special time and um it uh, has really accelerated the quality of the wines in the area. Um, in 1983, and probably the same people that were putting together Steamboat um, got together, um, a, um, a group of wine growers, uh, wine makers, vineyard managers, viticulturists, um, got together and started discussing um, you know, the boundaries for AVAs. And in 1983, the Willamette Valley AVA was established as Oregon's first AVA, and it is still its largest AVA. Um, it's nearly three and a half million acres in size and uh, stretches from Portland and the northern boundaries of the Columbia River uh, south to just past Eugene. Um, and so, uh, really has quite an expansive region to cover um, and we have what we're seeing today and um, I think you know Andrew will touch on this as well is that we're seeing such an expansion of um, 
AVAs um, and also just places to further explore um, in this area as well. Uh, so people really dedicating themselves to, as the region matures, to getting an understanding and distinctiveness around that um, the Pinot Noir styles in those AVAs. Uh, then in 2006, um, the group, uh, which I can see Harry in there win as well, <laughs> um, was responsible for creating uh, the first six nested AVAs in the Willamette Valley. And um, Harry would have definitely been in charge of Shehalem and Ribbon Ridge, where your first vineyards and winery were first established. Um, and really starting to define the distinctive soils and terroirs, the elevation differences, the climate um, within those areas. So the Willamette Valley itself, a great, a large AVA is um, situated around the Willamette watershed. Um, and Julia will touch a little bit on what um, can qualify or what distinctiveness has to come uh, with a request to become an AVA. So I think I might let her jump into that with um, just letting everyone know that the four AVAs that we're going to talk about today are the new AVAs that have been created since 2019. So the Van Corridor AVA, um, the uh, Laurelwood and Tualatin Hills and the Lower Long Tom. Um, and then finally, um, Harry Peterson Edry was also responsible for the Willamette Valley in 2021, receiving um, the protected geographic indicator from the EU uh, to protect the um, the quality of, um, of Willamette Valley wines and the distinctiveness of this region so that it cannot be you know, replicated uh, fraudulently anywhere else. So um, Harry is always uh, still a big part of this industry um, and continues to make be a trailblazer in it. Julia, do you want to tell us a little bit now about the TTB process? I know you've dug in really deep to it. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, in the wine trade, we, we love talking about AVAs. We love specificity. Uh, this is, you know, something that is kind of intuitive once you are in, in the wine world, uh, how important AVAs are. But it's really a great teaching tool for consumers as well. Um, I always like to remind folks when we're talking about Oregon specifically, we have one of the highest blending standards in the US. Um, the federal level AVA blending standard is that 85% of grapes must be from an AVA, the, an AVA that's named on the label. In Oregon, it's 95%. We really have a, um, a high strict standard for AVA protection. And uh, it's important to remember that when Anybody can apply for an AVA, first of all, as Bree said, if you wanted to go through this process, you could. Um, it is a long process. And uh, yeah, I saw the question in the chat. Thank you, Andrew. Nested AVA is what we call AVAs within a larger AVA. Um, the process is a long one. So you'd have to have a lot of time, first of all, but you also need to be prepared to explain why this region has specific, ge like what geographical, what uh, what um, sort of just landmark standards, what climate um, differences make this area um, create unique wine? What does it, what is, is there something about this region that is, that warrants a specific wine, legally relevant wine designation? So you're showing that, okay, this, this area that I'm, I'm drawing the borders and I'm showing, um, you know, where, where this is going to start and stop. I need to show that this area is unique from the area around it. 
You also, if you're talking about a nested AVA, need to show that this area is not so distinctive that it warrants actually a redrawing of the larger AVA. So for example, Willamette Valley, uh, let's say if you're if you're writing a petition for a new AVA, you need to show that this AVA that you'd like to draw is sufficiently different from the area around it to warrant having a special American viticultural area designation for it. But you also need to show that it's still Willamette Valley, that it's not so different, so distinct that actually we should just cut part out of the Willamette Valley and make it completely separate. That's the first thing you really need to establish. And a lot goes into this. There's maps to be drawn. There's uh, you know, weather stations, explanations of various microclimates. It's really an amazing amount of research on the part of the person who writes these AVAs. And uh, once that petition is submitted, the process from start to finish can take several years. Uh, it's been about four years on average, I think, for the last few AVAs that we've had, where you submit this petition, you've established your um, reasons for why it should be separate. You've also established historical name significance. So um, I would love to just establish an AVA and call it the name of you know, my favorite character in a TV show or you know, the Julia Burke AVA, but <laughs> I would need to establish that other people have called this area what it is and that the name has a historical meaning and significance and that people will understand why it's called that. So that's another thing that has to be specific. Um, once you have established all of these things, then the TTV needs to review it. They open a public comment period, which is where um, they are looking for folks to weigh in and say, oh yeah, this is absolutely a region that warrants its own AVA. I buy grapes from vineyards in this area. Absolutely, there is something special and distinct about them. Or perhaps if someone has, a, um, if there's a controversial issue with the AVA, if there is something to discuss, um, like, oh, you know, I'm not sure I like this name, or I think that this could present a conflict. That is where those comments go. And that comment period takes about 60 days. And then the TTV reviews all those comments. Um, and then the next period is kind of just looking at the whole package of, does this make sense for this, for this petition to move forward? So a lot of patience and a lot of research on the part of the petitioner or petitioners, it can be more than one. And um, once it's established, really, as I mentioned, a great teaching tool. Um, I have mentioned this before to, to Andrew, but I remember before the lower long Tom AVA was established, I would show maps of the Lamette Valley and my consumer audiences would say, oh, so there's no wineries below this point in the valley because they would see that there are no nested AVAs. And I'd have to say, no, no, of course not. Oh, there's, there's wineries throughout the valley. It's a very big region and there's wineries all over the South Valley. But now that there is an nested AVA there, Lower Long Tom, our newest one, um, it is just so I, I can skip that step entirely. Consumers understand, oh, this is an area where there is enough specificity and there's a distinctive microclimate where it made sense to, to create an AVA there. So, uh, you know, as a young region, it's really exciting time to watch these new AVAs get uh, get developed. Yeah. Andrew, do you have any comments on that delightful process? Seems you've just been through um, a big committee with <laughs> multiple, <laughs> multiple back and forths with the TTB. Yeah, I think I think one of the critical things, uh, especially on the time piece, is just to, to know um, how long it takes. And it was uh, six years in process for the lower long tom to actually be passed, uh, perfected and then approved by the TTB and let alone 
that it was started on a, under a different name. And the original name for it was submitted as Prairie Mountain, which is a mountain that is in the coast range um, that actually has a pretty dramatic uh, microclimactic effect on the lower Long Tom AVA, but the mountain set outside of the boundary of the AVA. And so the TTB geographically rejected the name um, and then another name had to be searched out. And uh, the Long Tom River, the Long Tom Watershed, we have uh, the, the uh, indigenous tribe that was part of the Kalapuyan tribe that lived in this area, their uh, name, and I, and I don't know the, how to say it in Kalapuyan, but it was pronounced something along the lines of Long Tumbler, and that's where Long Tom came from. So it's not even just as, as simple as submitting um, your application, the approval process is real, and, and especially on the naming side, you have to show some sort of historical relevance and significance to the name that gets chosen. Um, so you can't just choose one on a whim uh, and run with it and uh, just because you like the sound of it. Um, and then you also run, of course, into other complications. Uh, for those of you familiar with the Willamette Valley, where we have a winery called Willamette Valley Vineyards, uh, who is subject to rules and regulations uh, because of sharing the name with the AVA uh, that the rest of us don't have to deal with, which is pretty interesting. So pretty complex and you have to be pretty committed to wanting that defined place if you're going to uh, jump into this, this whole process. Uh, we've got some good questions coming through in the Q&A and in the chat, and Julia is, is answering a lot of them in there as well. Um, one of the questions is, why is the AVA standard not 100%? <clears throat> and so the AVA standard across the U.S. is not 100%, um, and it gets more specific depending on um, the size of the, the nested AVA size. So state AVAs are, um, have more risk less restrictions. Um, and then there's nested AVAs that have deeper restrictions as well. Um, and then generally speaking, um, David asked about, um, does a, a region have to be, have something there for a specific number of years to qualify as a candidate for a new AVA? And I think that generally speaking, um, most people won't seek out an ABA unless they're finding after you know many years of growing grapes and making wine in that place that um, this is a special um, neighborhood or district compared to grapes that are grown um, from a different um, region or area where the where the um, where it's farmed from. Julia, do you want to answer that question? <laughs> Um, sorry, uh, in Oregon, why are we not 100% I see? Uh, I was, in, I was uh, typing another question in the chat. Um, I, uh, I think, you know, there is, there are probably some people who would like to move in that direction. It may at some point move in that direction. There are also people who like to have the ability to blend a small amount from another part of the state. Um, but, you know, this is the U.S. We're kind of the Wild West of <laughs> wine. We're, uh, everywhere in the New World, I would say, is kind of the Wild West in terms of, um, you know, being able to create the rules that we want and, and establish the standards that we want. And uh, as I mentioned in the chat, you know, we, we don't really have this kind of historical, long-established quality level system that something like France does where it's like, okay, well, we know that this vineyard is the best vineyard in town. So we're gonna call it this. And we know that, you know, this region is, is this quality level and we're gonna establish these kind of rigorous standards with, with winemaking to meet that. 
we don't have that. You can do whatever you want in the U.S. So it's kind of going to be interesting. It's interesting for young regions like ours to uh, think about as we mature and as we develop, um, you know, how we want uh, to to, whether we want to have, you know, quality specific, whether we want to have a crew system, whether we want to have, you know, specific vineyards that are that are called out. And um, yeah, all, all of these rules are, are in some sense changeable, but um, I think the, there has never been an assumption in the U.S. that you're going to have a 100% ABA standard. And um, yeah, so it, that's the reason that you, it's, it's, pretty, um, it's pretty much unheard of in, at the smaller level. Yeah, and in some ways, it's it's almost about protecting, you know, the growers and people within within those AVAs as well. The majority of wines are 100%, you know, from the particular AVA. Um, but, you know, in some years when you have maybe um, poor fruit set or bad weather or certain rot issues or wildfires, it may be uh, better for the health and economy of all in the region and all your growers to be able to supplement some of, um, and only 5% is pretty small in other AVAs around the US, um, it's larger than that. So Oregon is still uh, much stricter in its uh, requirements for AVA and varietal standards on labels, um, but it, it does, it, it, you can put 100% um, such and such on the label, whether it's 100% Pinot Noir or 100% um, AVA, you can actually put that on the label if you wanted to. So I think people will leave that up to the, the people then in the AVA. Wynn, what do you think? Yeah, and um, I was going to say that if you do put the name of a vineyard on there, it does in fact have to be 100%. So that's one place that I see most people putting the vineyard and the AVA in the same line on their labels. Um, and in that sense, you would always know that it's 100% from that AVA because you can't you can't blend anything in if it's vineyard designate, so. Yeah, exactly. Do the blending regulations align with the dominant traditional grape varieties of the Willamette Valley? Let's, let's bookmark that question for, <laughs> for later. <laughs> I was just going to ask: Do we think that Pinot Noir hasn't been traditionally blended in in uh, in in France with other grape varieties? In Burgundy, yeah. <laughs> it sure, it's supposed to be, but that doesn't say that historically that you don't see Tinturier type grapes in vineyards when you drive by in the middle of fall. So, well, and exactly the legal varieties in Burgundy are Pinot Noir, Gamay Noir. Uh, Pinot Gris, Aligote, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, um, and the same is true in Burgundy as in the U.S. That for varietal regulations, um, it should be eighty-five percent. So you can blend in anything else. They just typically are more associated with the place, and we've simplified that to being linked to a single variety because that's how the mod the New World wine thinks. Okay, let's move into discussing Pinot Noir through these ABAs. So everyone knows that Oregon is very much associated with Pinot Noir. It does make up 60% uh, of the plantings in Oregon. Um, it is mostly found in the Willamette Valley, and it is uh, nearly, is it 75% of plantings in the Willamette Valley still, Julia? 
Um, yeah, I believe it's close to that. I can pull up the exact number, but it's it's been it's been in the sixty to seventy realm for quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, and so there's still a lot of acres to be planted in the Willamette Valley, and there's a lot of um, Pinot Noir in the rest of the state as well. And in fact, in the Umpqua Valley and in the Rogue Valley, uh, which are both nested AVAs of Southern Oregon, um, Pinot Noir is the most planted grape variety. So Pinot Noir is the most planted grape variety in most AVAs within Oregon. Um, and the Willamette Valley definitely holds the top positioning for um, for Pinot Noir. Uh, because of that history of um, being highly recognized for Pinot Noir um, quality, high quality, um, since 1979 and the Irie Vineyards, um, people have furthered to explore the grape variety that does really tend to be one of the most transparent grape varieties and showcases of place. And so that's how we've started coming into um, more of the, the new AVAs. Um, and we can talk about the distinctiveness of those um, places in themselves. Um, and we will jump into uh, specifically the Van Duzer Corridor to begin with. Um, so this is a picture of the two vineyards that were the first Pinot Noir plantings in the state, David Hill Winery on the top, which is in the Tualatin Hills AVA, and then um, the Irie Vineyard in the bottom there, corner there. Um, so both of these vineyards were um, some of the first plantings in the Willamette Valley, and both are parts of nested AVAs. Um, we did have a new nested AVA in the in the Van Duzer Corridor in 2019, and this was the first um, new AVA within the Willamette Valley since 2006, and those series of nested AVAs um, started. And so this was because there's, you know, they've defined the Van Duzer Corridor um, very um, Colloquially, um, it's often referred to as, um, you know, the cooling influence that comes through the coast range and really cools down the valleys, um, especially the Eola Amity Hills. Um, but there's a number of vineyards that have been planted um, on that sort of low-lying hill um, that sits in front of the Eola Amity Hills AVA. Um, and there's been uh, plantings there for um, two decades or more uh, that finally feel like they need some, uh, you know, distinction around them. So defining some of these lower lining sites as being part of that Van Duzer Corridor AVA, it's distinctively different soil to the Eola Amity Hills AVA um, to its east and to the McMinnville AVA to its north. Um, and so this felt like to those um, growers and winemakers there that the fruit coming off of the vineyards here had a much um, much different character to those surrounding AVAs. So marine sedimentary soils, um, fairly deep, able to um, get good root structure. Um, the Van Duzer Corridor itself um, blows right over this entire AVA and the AVA itself is quite low elevation in comparison to the surrounding um, AVAs in the area. Um, these ripening of Pinot Noir and other varieties in this AVA as well is also um, much delayed. So it's often one of the last AVAs um, in the Willamette Valley to be harvested. 
And also the combination of that Vanduza corridor wind that blows down that corridor from the Pacific Ocean really helps to keep the air movement happening in the fruit zone and helping to um, keep the fruit here um, very free from any um, issues of rot or or uh, mildew that might come with being in a cooler climate. Um, and so that's very important here as well. And also allows for that deeper hang time um, on, on the vine as well. Um, also because of those winds, the grape berries and bunches themselves tend to be a little smaller, have slightly thicker skins, have high, slightly higher skin to juice ratios, have a little more tension and phenolics on the palate and help to retain their own natural acidity um, in that AVA area. And so the wines tend to have a vibrant acidity to them um, with you know, nice structure and uh, really juicy acidity coming from there. Um, Wynn or Andrew, either of you, have you worked with uh, Vanduza fruit? Um, what are, do you, do you seek out um, different AVAs for, for some of your, for your bottlings? What's the meaning of a new AVA to you? I haven't ever worked with the Vanduza corridor fruit personally, but um, I've worked with a lot of Eola Amity Hills right on the kind of the border there and I think everything that you kind of explained is pretty spot on. I do seek out those kinds of nested AVAs that are really distinctive. I think um, as we're talking about new nested AVAs and we talk about the Laurelwood district, I think that one's really interesting because um, most of the vineyards in that nested AVA are called out because they do have the Laurelwood soil. Um, I think it's really interesting to see the distinction that that soil in one region can make. And uh, in Van Duzer and Eola Amity, I'm sure there's kind of a mixture of some of those soils and to see like um, volcanic soil from Eola Amity or Van Duzer versus Van volcanic soil from Dundee Hills. I think even though they're the same soil type, the region that it's grown in and um, the influence of elevation and wind and, you know, aspect towards the sun really does make a difference. So you could have completely different wines coming out of Van Duzer as you would from Dundee Hills or from um, Yamhill Carlton, even if there is some of the same soil type. So I think that kind of distinction is what makes it a valid ABA. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think you do definitely, as the more time you spend here, you start to see those those distinctions coming through in the fruit flavors and the wine flavors um, and the structure of the wines as well. There's definitely a conversation around the microclimates or those microclimatic impacts that are happening um, in each of these nested, nested AVAs. Um, actually, when while we've got you up here, I'm going to get you to roll right into Laurelwood District since you've spent so much of your time um, in the Chehalem Mountains AVA. And now, a word from our sponsor. Looking to be in the know about Dracaena wines? Want to be the first to know about our new releases and special offers? All you need to do is sign up for our newsletter. There is no commitment necessary, and I promise you we won't spam your mailbox with loads of messages. 
Need another reason to sign up? Quite possibly the best reason? You'll immediately get a discount code for 10% off your first purchase and be privy to newsletter-only discounts. Let Dracina Wines turn your moments into great memories. Visit our website, www.dracinawines.com, or use the link in show notes to sign up. It will take you less than a minute, but the rewards will last a lifetime. Right on the other side of that 99. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've spent my time in a lot of different parts of not only the Shehala Mountains, but now the Laurelwood District and Ribbon Ridge, which are both... Um, nested AVAs within the Shehala Mountains. So if you have fruit grown from Laurelwood or from Ribbon Ridge, you can also call that fruit Shehala Mountains um, AVA fruit. So if you're calling um, a blend that you're making Shehala Mountain, Shehala Mountain AVA um, designate, you can use fruit from anywhere within the Shehala Mountains AVA, which includes Laurelwood and includes Ribbon Ridge. So um, it's a pretty large region. Um, Shehala Mountains was named before both Ribbon Ridge and the Laurelwood um, AVAs. And Laurelwood is pretty brand new as of the last year and a half, but it was kind of separated out from the greater Shehala Mountain AVA because of what I was mentioning before, that soil type. It's really distinct. It's actually the Laurelwood soil type, um, which is a subset of some of the Missoula flood silt um, that was brought down eons ago from um, big glacial meltings and refreezing and melting and refreezing from Canada and Montana. So if you're aware of um, those cataclysmic floods that basically created the Columbia Gorge, that's where the soil type from the Laurelwood series came from. So it was um, this flooding over and over that deposited the silt matter that's really fine, gives really elegant Pinot Noirs. Um, the experience that I have with the Laurelwood series always gave more red fruited Pinot Noirs, more elegant tannins, um, probably in contrast to the Van Duzer Corridor fruit that you were just talking about. It, there isn't nearly as much wind it's almost more of like, it's not a valley in any sense, but it's a much uh, more gentle slope. Um, so it's not, you don't have the peaks of the coastal range that influence the wind quite as much. It's a much broader um, kind of rolling valleys there. And because of just that gentle hillside, that's why that silty, um, that silty soil kind of got blown there years ago and has settled there. If you have a lot of runoff and um, what would you call it? Yeah, if you have a lot of runoff from this soil type, you're, you're still going to have a relatively decent um, topsoil because it is all these windblown deposits from years and years. And because the slope is so gentle, it doesn't deteriorate quite as quickly. Um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty decent sized AVA. Um, I know that Shehala Mountains was one of the larger AVAs um, in the early AVA designations, but now having Laurelwood kind of sectioned out of it, Laurelwood is probably the predominant soil type in that Shehala Mountains area. So um, yeah, I think the more delicacy, the <clears throat> prettier tannins, the more elegant tannins, and kind of just 
more red fruited, um, beautiful, classic Pinot Noir, in my opinion, um, is kind of the main characteristics of those and a great place for white wines as well. So any of the Chardonnays and Rieslings and uh, Pinot Gris that I've made from these sites over the years have been really acid driven and bright and pretty, um, not quite as much of the ripe peach that you would get from somewhere that's a little bit sunnier or a little bit warmer, but more of like a citrus driven whites. So that's kind of my overall view of that. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I know that the, um, when I was always trying to define, you know, where, what parts of each nested AVA, what they, what do they reflect in the glass? You're always finding that really um, lifted, pretty floral red fruit flavors and uh, red florals, red hibiscus, and the whites tend to be pretty aromatic as well. And the tannins are quite distinctive on from the wines on those laurel wood soils as well, in terms of that fine grained sort of structure to them. Um, when you when you really do taste them next to other AVAs, I find they're quite distinctive as well. It was a great yeah, summary. I always called it kind of a silk nap. So not like chewy or dense, but more just pretty and elegant and just textural. Yeah, really textural. I love that. And yeah, some of the best Rieslings as well. I, I don't all the Rieslings that I always gravitate to, I find come out of um, these lower wood soils as well. They're really pretty. Yeah. Um, so that's the Laurelwood District AVA, and um, it, you know, really was some of the first um, founding plantings. Ponzi was one of the first up there as well. Um, the second AVA that we're going to discuss is the Tualatin Hills, which um, also came about um, in 2020 at the same time that the Laurelwood District AVA came about. Um, and there was, you know, um, it's the Tualatin Hills because it's defined around the Tualatin uh, watershed, river watershed. Um, and it does contain a high number of those laurel wood soils as well, those fine, um, silty, windblown um, soils, uh, and quite deep as well. And as you can see on the map here, um, you can see that those winds um, push down the Columbia River Valley and have really deposited themselves on that Laurelwood District AVA um, and on the eastern, um, northeastern side of the Tualatin Hills um, AVA itself. Um, however, the soils in the Tualatin Hills AVA are not quite as uniform as those in the Laurelwood District. Um, and so that's why um, the vineyards here, which do range from slightly lower elevation um, foothill vineyards up to higher elevations around the 600, 700 foot mark um, have been defined as the Tualatin Hills and those um, Laurelwood low soils tend to sit on um, on top and on the eastern sides and then as you move further down into the valley they move into the more volcanic um, soil profiles here. So you do get a fair amount of distinctiveness um, in the Tualatin Hills but probably one of the most distinctive things that you get from the Tualatin Hills AVA is that 
it's the most most northwesterly in the Willamette Valley. And for that reason, it's also um, one of the AVAs that are pretty heavily impacted by the Pacific Ocean. Um, and while we talk about the Van Dusen Corridor, um, you could sort of refer to this as being in the Tillamook Corridor because that highway runs right out to the coast and that all of the fog and rain and wind um, from Tillamook get really funneled down the that valley um, in the Tualatin Hills AVA. And so the wines here um, are slightly more impacted by that wind, um, which really is what separates them from the Laurel Wood District AVA. Um, similar soil type, so you get this bright, flavorful fruit um, and good high, high acidity, um, very red fruit flavored and very high aromatic in terms of the whites, um, but you do sort of get a, um, a slightly more savory or rustic tannin profile because of that wind influence coming through on the berries and thickening those skins a little bit. Um, the grapes here are often a couple of weeks later in ripening and in harvest um, than the Laurelwood District and most most of the other um, northerly nested AVAs like Shehalem or Dundee. So Tualatin and Van Dusa Corridor and um, Eola Amity Hills, those sort of later impacted wind, windy AVAs um, are really the ones that tend to be a fair bit later in terms of harvest. Um, and then, of course, it always dep depends on where in the valley or what your aspect of slope is. Your vine age, younger vines tend to open tend to ripen earlier um, than old vines do. So there's a whole lot of complexity that comes into, you know, when you're discussing um, what makes an AVA, so to speak. Um, and then that, oh, there's a question in the chat coming through. <laughs> Twilight and really Selene has always been amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's those, those really um, fine-grained soils. Um, they tend to retain the uh, water a little better as well. When you add water to them, they're very fine powdery soils. And when you add water to them, it almost becomes like a clay paste almost. Um, and so during our wet months, which are Apparently, April is still a snow month now, um, but during our wet months, these soils really do help to um, soak up all of that water and retain a lot of the moisture, which really gets them through the growing season and helps um, moderate their, their um, phenolic ripening and physiological ripening throughout the growing season. Um, so very different characteristics um, from these soils and from these two new AVA um, which is why they were created. So um, I'm sure that we'll start to see a little more um, vineyard plantings happening in these AVAs and more characteristics, you know, defining characteristics coming from them um, as um, more people start to discover these wines as well. And Andrew, I'm going to let you jump in about the Lower Long Tom AVA. And also I want you to touch on, you know, why, why AVAs, nested AVAs or why AVAs are important to you or if they are or if they're not, discuss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I can answer all of those questions. Um, I, I, I think what's important, I don't, uh, Julia, I don't know if we can flip back or someone flip back to a, a full picture of the Willamette Valley to again just recognize how 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 separate um, the Lower Long Tom AVA is um, from the rest. As Julia was pointing out earlier, um, that there is 
you know, for the long time of answering. So there's nothing else down here. Uh, I, I think it's important to note that within the, the Northern Willamette Valley, well, we're probably 400 some odd wineries in the North Willamette Valley at this point. Um, and in the same geographic area in the South Central and South Willamette Valley, there's about 25. So it's it's not that far off to say that there aren't any um, by by comparison, but grape growing and winemaking have been happening all over the Willamette Valley um, since the you know since the the mid '60s and into the '70s, and the first real commercial vineyards established in the Lower Long Tom um, in the early 1980s. Um, granted, uh, you can also go just about to ooh, a lot of other states around the United States and post prohibition start seeing. Uh, grape growing and winemaking happening in the 70s um, as it became also a cultural thing. And that's a big driver um, for also how we see wine, not just on the West Coast where we grow um, a lot of grapes, but also around the rest of the country as well. So specifically for the Lower Long Tom, when we were thinking about what it was going to look like to file for it, what does the petition look like? Uh, one of the interesting things is we talk about the Missoula floods and the impact of those floods in the Willamette Valley a lot. Uh, those coming down the Columbia River Gorge and into the, the watershed of the Willamette Valley, they actually didn't have much impact as they got farther south. So those flood levels uh, basically petered out and, and the elevation in the Willamette Valley rises as you go south. So where the lower long tom starts in terms of elevation is right around 400 feet, um, which is untouched by the Missoula floods. So the soil uh, composition is uh, largely ancient marine sediments from when this part of Oregon was the bottom of the Pacific Ocean that then was, was pushed up due to, to uh, you know, cataclysmic geologic activity. And what has happened in that lift is that, you know, while it was still the bottom of the ocean, that there are undersea lava flows um, going on as the as the earth is essentially settling. And so with that uplift, you end up with some volcanic layers on top of marine sediments, but those volcanic layers were cooled under the water rather than being weathered uh, like you might find in the Olamity Hills or up in the Dundee Hills in the northern part um, of the valley. So th that's one particular thing, that soil type that is the, it is a homogenous soil type for all of the lower long tom AVA, which is called bell pine, is that mix of sedimentary and uh, and volcanic. The, the topsoil, that volcanic layer can range usually from around uh, about maybe 50 inches at the deepest to about eight at, at, the, um, at the thinnest. Um, and then underneath it is just fractured and friable sandstone. So if you get a hold of it, you really can just break it apart and it turns into dust uh, in your hands, which of course allows for um, a lot of, uh, well, it doesn't allow for a lot of water retention. We'll say it, we'll say it that way. Um, so there tends to be a bit more um, of, of digging for water. We're also in a little bit of a rain shadow. So nestled in just to the foothills of the, uh, of the coast range, which you can see um, in the photograph, that's actually a, a photograph of uh, Antiquum Farm on the presentation and that it, it is just uh, timberland until you get to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, so that rain shadow does have an effect where even during the harvest season, uh, the city of Eugene is about 20 some odd miles as the crow flies. It can be pouring rain in Eugene and still be dry uh, out at the farm, uh, out in the lower Long Tom AVA. So it really does have a significant impact. 
there's lots of other things, microclimatic things, wind patterns, all this kind of stuff that we can get into. But in the formation of the AVA, it really is just, it's a group of people coming together to say, we've been here, we are here, we're farming here, we're working here, and we're looking for some sort of recognition in order to be in a delimited area. It is still not defined as to what the wine quality character and perspective is from the lower long tom AVA. Um, some of that is just the lack of concentration of wineries and vineyards. I think we have 10 producing wineries in the Appalachian at the moment. Uh, if you were to head, of course, north into the nested AVAs, uh, the Van Duzer Corridor probably has about the same amount, a bit more acreage of grapes, um, but particularly as you get into Yamhill Carlton, Dundee, Ribbon Ridge, that concentration goes way, way up, and there is more of a defined character to actually see from producer to producer to producer, but it didn't just come out of nothing. It's because the people were working there, sharing ideas. We talked about the Steamboat Conference uh, earlier in the presentation, those kind of key things that have driven a lot of what has happened in the North Willamette Valley uh, haven't touched as much down in the South Willamette Valley. So with the Lower Long Tom, there's a really big question about what it will be. It's not so much about what it is. Um, what it is, is small farms, um, largely working in their own little pockets, uh, doing, doing the work of grape growing and winemaking, uh, making the, the best of the businesses that they have. Um, most of the wines made in the Lower Long Tom, you actually won't see around the United States, um, not even outside of, of the country, um, because there's just not much of it. And most of those wines that are made uh, in a provincial way um, service the local population. There's a few wineries, uh, Antiquum Farm included, uh, Broadly, Brigadoon, um, that do have a bit more national reach. But again, uh, this is about what happens next. And from our lens, uh, there is a really big important piece about cultural terroir. So we talk a lot about sort of, you know, the impacts of climate and soil and everything else, um, but the people really make a big difference. So what practices, now that we have this thing formed, um, how strong our community is, the decisions that we make, uh, the people who come exploring, who might want to plant vineyards in a new appellation. Uh, there's some, some sense, I think, really where it's still quite possible that, you know, when we're talking about Pinot Noir, that the best Pinot Noir vineyard in Oregon has yet to be planted. And that kind of exploration um, can be really exciting. And maybe, maybe that place is in the lower long time. Maybe it's somewhere on the east side of I-5, uh, closer to the Cascade Range that we just haven't gotten to yet. I mean, you have to also remember, and if you look into the look at the picture uh, of Antiquum Farm in the corner and you see all that timber, that is still the majority of, of the land as we get close to the mountains on either side of the valley is it's a lot of planted timber for the timber industry. That is not technically forest. Uh, that is, that's a house. <laughs> Those are a lot of houses uh, planted and, and uh, being prepared to be harvested. So there's still more exploration to do. And certainly I think the lower long tom as, as we see other new AVAs, nested AVAs get established, they become a, a great question of, uh, of who, who will make the impact and what will we see, what will the community look like and how will culture drive uh, the terroir so that maybe in another decade, um, we can talk about the Lower Long Tom in the same way as Ribbon Ridge, as Dundee, as Eola Amity, as Laurelwood, uh, as the Shehalem Mountains and have a, a, a better understanding of what it actually means for the wines. Um, but luckily, I mean, at this point, we're excited that it's up to us to find out what that is. Uh, so I, I don't know, come plant a vineyard. Is that what I'm saying? Um, 
Now I want to come get some land down in Lower Long Tom. <laughs> okay, so the price of grapes just went up, and uh, yeah, it's it's part of the the joy of this. I mean, I think someone asked a question, uh, and maybe it was answered a little bit earlier in the chat about the the association of wine quality and and a nested AVA, and even if we looked at like an AOC or whatever other delimited term we're using around the world of wine. I personally don't see any sort of delimited area as being necessarily correlated to quality. Quality happens because the people are there doing the work. It's not, it's not the governmental agency circling a piece of land and saying, well, thanks for proposing this. Now we have a boundary. Like it doesn't mean that outside the boundary, the quality is any different um, or, or that inside of it, the quality is somehow better. Uh, the quality yeah. remains up to us when it comes to our own great growing practices and winemaking. I, I think that's what the important different differentiator is between, you know, the the conversation about crews and grand crews and the more traditional Burgundian system or French system um, than the AVA system in the US is much more about what does this piece of place mean to us and it can be more of that cultural conversation the cultural terroir of of that ava in place and i think when ribbon ridge has um sort of defined itself in its ttb um application um as being a you know organic you know focused um ava where all producers sort of you know prescribe to organic farming practices um so that's sort of the power of where the tt where the ava can go um yeah we kind of have a self-prescribed sustainability um movement and so the idea is for everybody to either be live or eventually go to organic or biodynamic and i think that's the first AVA, because it's so small, we can do that. There aren't that many grape growers in that one little AVA, but that's the power of being part of an AVA um, community is being able to sway the other people in your region um, into, a, if you all have a similar mindset, getting on board and coming together for a joint purpose. Yeah, one of one of the uh, the conversations that we had in the establishment, which this will get to a question that popped up about about uh, vineyard acreage price, um, is that is that an AVA is not a magic fix. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't magically make people think that you make quality grapes. Now it lets people know that there are wineries in our region um, on a testable level um, for sure, um, but. Uh, uh, there was there's a real sense of like this doesn't this doesn't make your sales cycle move faster. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't mean that your prices can all of a sudden elevate. Um, there's still work to be proven, um, and, and certainly you know that approach can can there are approaches that can be taken. So for instance, if we're talking now about what is the cost of buying land in the lower long tom AVA because of the AVA. I wouldn't say that it, it it actually has changed it all that much. Um, yeah, relatively, land prices in Oregon are are some of the how do I say uh, they're the lowest when we're talking about buying into vineyards, uh, but probably that you can find in a lot of places in the United States. Um, it's part of the reason. Uh, and I wish Eugenia was on uh, able to be on to talk about the uh, part of the interest of California investment. Um, and also international investment in the Willamette Valley 
really is about land prices. Um, certainly it's about access and taxes. Uh, these are all horrible things. Uh, they're about love of wine and people love wine and they wanna be here. Um, but there's a lot of things, good business decisions that can be made about being in the Willamette Valley. So probably right now, if you were to come into the Lower Long Tom and you were talking about plantable acreage for a vineyard, uh, you'd probably end up paying between twenty-five to thirty-five thousand dollars per acre, um, and then you know, say it was a, a twenty-acre plot, um, and you had ten acres that were determined to be plantable. Um, you could use that twenty-five thousand to thirty-five thousand dollar per acre as a marker, and then probably the rest of the acreage would land somewhere between six to eight thousand uh, dollars, depending on what it was. And this is excluding if uh, someone has has built a home on it or not. Um, but uh, to head up to the valley, uh, when what, what's a what's a planted uh, acre or an acre of land in Ribbon Ridge cost these days? I'm not sure. I even know. We bought ours in like the '80s, so um, I have not shopped around. But I'm sure somebody out there in the chat, like um, I don't know if Harry's on here, but it's probably seventy-five or eighty. I'm, yeah, it's I'm closer guessing. to. Yeah, eighty-five thousand an acre for yeah, yeah eighty-five thousand an acre for no AVAs that have been established a yeah. little more for unplanted, and then that's you add another thirty thousand an acre to establish vines and buy buy vines and put in posts and irrigation and whatnot. Again, it depends which part of the AVA you might be in, what vineyard you might be planting next to, if any, are there any others in your neighborhood? Because we're still looking at fairly large AVA sizes. So Ribbon Ridge is very tiny. So there's not a lot of plantable acreage left in Ribbon Ridge. So I would think that the pricing in Ribbon Ridge is going to be a lot higher than um, say in the rest of, in some of those other AVAs as well. So I think there's a lot of things to consider there, like, like with any real estate purchase. Um, but there's definitely, um, or, you know, a reason why, um, a lot of Californians and French investment is, is coming to Oregon. Um, and I think, yes, price has a great thing, a great deal to do with it, but also the natural resources that are around it, um, the access to water, the ability, the fact that we still have water the majority of the time, there's generally not a lot of hazards um, in this area yet. So I think there's um, also those considerations for from a sustainability aspect um, and also the uh, high reputation for um, Oregon wines in general and Willamette Valley wines and um, the varieties that that come from there. Pinot Noir obviously is one of those uh, varieties, but we're now starting as a good segue to Chardonnay. Um, you know, Chardonnay traditionally has not been a major focus in the Willamette Valley, um, despite it being um, planted among the first grape varieties, along with Pinot Noir and Riesling and Pinot Gris, um, there was Chardonnay planted. Um, however, at the time, it tended to be a clone of Chardonnay that was um, unreliable in its fruit set, um, and then the further clones that came into Oregon as well uh, tended to be higher yielding clones of Chardonnay um, and really didn't seem to fit the um, American palette for Chardonnay in the 70s and 80s that that 
you know, Chardonnay around the world had at that time. Um, but now it is um, really <laughs> coming coming on strong um, here in the valley. And I'm not sure what the I know that we've gone from 4% of plantings of Chardonnay to 7% of plantings, but this, um, these figures really only talk about the actual producing acreage. Um, and we have to remember that the establishment of a vineyard takes several years. So while it says 7% right now, in a couple of years, this is going to flip very quickly to probably become 14% um, of plantings uh, in, in the Willamette Valley. Um, and when you have really, you know, been a part of the Chardonnay movement from, you know, from the very beginning here in the Valley and working with so many different clones, um, different winemaking techniques, um, and really been part of the new plantings that are, that are happening here. Do you want to talk about what you're, what you've seen and what you're excited about by Chardonnay? Yeah, of course. Um, I think, yeah, one thing that Brie mentioned is that it was, Originally one of the founding grapes of the most recent Oregon wine industry, um, meaning that when David Lett planted Pinot in 1965, he planted Pinot Gris and Chardonnay um, in the same in the same time period. So um, Chardonnay, because it was grown right next to Pinot Noir in Burgundy, was pretty much the first thought of a lot of grape growers in the Willamette Valley, even from the beginning. Um, so it was, you know, it's the, it's the white pairing to the red wine um, of Pinot Noir. So it's been here since the beginning, but I think in the beginning where a lot of the U.S. wine grapes were coming from was California. And so because California has a much different growing climate than Oregon has, especially in the early days, um, a lot of those clones that people were bringing up from California to plant here in Oregon weren't ripening as fully as we had want, would want them to. Um, we love our acid in Chardonnay, but there's a difference between having some acid in your Chardonnay and having some Chardonnay in your acid. So those grapes were just, you know, it was almost undrinkable in some cooler vintages back in the early days. So um, the clones were really frustrating I think is the best word. Um, some of them were were seeded for high production in California also because California Chardonnays um, in the 60s and 70s sometimes were made for production purposes for going into a gallon jug or for you know high consumption rates um, and it wasn't necessarily made for the boutique style that Oregon has been fostering. So not only did we need, you know, smaller cluster sizes, um, we needed later or earlier ripening styles. So a lot of that changed in the late 80s um, when David Adelsheim, he was pretty much um, the, the spearheader of bringing in a lot of Dijon clones Chardonnay into Oregon. Um, Dijon clones arrived in the late 80s and it really changed the way that Oregonians were growing Chardonnay. These Dijon clones were suited more for the French climate than for Californian climate, which means that they could um, ripen in slightly cooler temperatures and shorter growing periods. Um, they had smaller high density clusters like the Pinot Noir clusters that we're used to here. And 
they did still have acid, even though um, reaching full maturity a little bit uh, more quickly. So those Dijon clones have, um, I think when people started planting those in the late 80s, we had a resurgence of appreciation for Chardonnay here. I think if you look at the graph of who had Chardonnay planted and what percentage of the state's total grape growing um, plantings were Chardonnay, it kind of goes in a little bit of a double mountain curve. So, you know, at the beginning, everybody was planting Chardonnay with their Pinot. And then when those clones weren't really working out, some of them were ripped out. Um, some people lost interest. And then as Dijon clones um, gained some traction and people understood that they actually did ripen better in Oregon, the resurgence comes again. And I think we're still going up. So um, if it's 7% now, it probably was down as low as, yeah, like 4% 10 or 15 years ago. Before that, it was probably higher again. But I think we're going to keep going up, as Brie mentioned. So those Dijon clone Chardonnays really um, ripened more fully here, gave us more, more of kind of the um, fully ripe phenolics, the fully ripe uh, flavors that we were looking for. And then as the climate started to warm up a little bit more, um, some of those previous clones that people had maybe taken out started making more sense again. So we're able to ripen some heritage California clones here in Oregon that we weren't able to get fully ripe 10 to 15 years ago. So people are starting to plant again some of those clones that um, have kind of made their mark in California Chardonnay growing regions. So things like Mount Eden, uh, things like Wenty clone, things like um, the 108 or the um, those Draper clones. Um, so things like that can get more flavorful here than they could in the past. And especially if you've got a warmer, a warmer site, you can plant some of those bigger production clones that, um, that can get you to the point that you want to be. I mean, it's all stylistic here in the Willamette Valley too. There are some people that would prefer the clusters be as big as my head. And there are some people that would prefer that they be the size of my fist. So I think the variety that is available and useful here in Oregon now is really making a big difference. So I think you're going to see a lot more Chardonnay anywhere from stainless steel fermented and bright and flashy um, and slightly larger production to really fine, high quality Burgundian style Chardonnays um, that are made from, you know, two tons an acre, two and a half tons an acre, three tons an acre, just like Pinot Noir um, is. So, you know, intensity of those flavors and not necessarily super ripe, but intensity of flavors and acid balance and all of that. Um, so, yeah, I think I think with the Dijon clones and now with some climate change, um, we're really seeing the full potential of what people want to do. And we have a big, bigger palette, uh, not the, not this palette, the palette like um, of colors, of flavors, of clones to work from. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that complexity is really going to give us like with Pinot Noir, um, yeah, a lot deeper, conversation about the variety in the Willamette Valley. And when you mentioned something um, that I would like you to come back and touch on, because um, it's something that 
you know, we all talk about here in the Valley is that, um, I guess, more Burgundian style of winemaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we hear that about, you know, the leaves tightening and, you know, the, the tightening that comes from extended leaves um, or the transferal. So from oak into back to tank but with Lee's. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I know that you've probably come full spectrum and uh, the last winery that you worked for, you know, had a Burgundian consultant. Um, and so you probably have an, you know, unique um, ability to speak to that as well. Yeah, I think, um, I think there are a lot of people in the Valley that have been making Burgundian style Chardonnays for a very long time. Um, that's the great thing about the age that we live in is that at least half of the winemakers here in Oregon have spent some time in Burgundy and come back with a lot of the techniques um, and the tried and true methods that Burgundians have been using for hundreds of years to make their wines, and that includes Chardonnay. Um, so it, there's definitely kind of a resurgence of this phenolically um, present, bold acid but fully ripe. Chardonnay that is so distinct from the Chardonnay that everybody talks about when there was the ABCs of Chardonnay. So anything but Chardonnay. When people are sick of the overly oaked, rich, fat, buttery Chardonnays, they would kind of go a full 180 and either look for highly acidic, unoaked Chardonnays or something that's more Chablis-like or um, Merceau-like, um, where it's tight acid, but still oak fermented. So, um, just dialed down and the phenolics can come from some skin contact or some, um, extended maceration rather than from just oak tannins. So, um, obviously as an Oregonian, we have always been trying to separate ourselves from Burgundy and stand on our own, but there are some methods that those Burgundian winemakers know that we can transfer to Oregonian style winemaking um, and really make some beautiful Chardonnays that are um, reflective of the land that they're grown in and show, you know, we don't have limestone soils here. We're never going to make Chablis. We're never going to make um, a lot of the Burgundian Chardonnays, but we can make something akin to those that are just the American version of high-end, high-quality Chardonnay with a lot of attention to detail, a lot of barrel fermentation, and um, that are reflective of where they're grown, which is Oregon, not Burgundy. Yeah, I think it's important to mention that, you know, like Steamboat, um, that there's been a, a you know, our community for winemaking continues to stay um, tightly attuned to one another and, and dealing with issues on a, on a community and corporate level, which Chardonnay certainly was that and, and have had a Chardonnay technical tasting um, where people bring their wines that are in process and where we sit and share ideas and people who have like walked their production methodology from start to finish where we look at each other's numbers. I mean, you, you really, you know, you can get into the inside of someone's cellar uh, and the lack of, I think the lack of fear and the willingness for um, those in our winemaking community. And then and also in, in the wine growing community to sit down together and say, look, like, like if we want this to be world-class, it's not going to be up to anyone other than us. And certainly that 
I think that drive, you know, if, if I were to look at, at Chardonnay in the Willamette Valley and see sort of, uh, you know, uh, Domaine Druin coming in and kind of having a, a benchmark wine in their Artur Chardonnay, which you can, of course, find, um, you know, throughout the, throughout the country, um, it was, again, moving with some, some folks from Burgundy taking an interest again. And I remember an, an exhortation uh, at one of those technical tastings years ago um, where Dominique Lafon just said, look, like if you want to, uh, you can keep planting Chardonnay in the lower parts of your vineyards, but until you put it where you would put Pinot Noir, um, it's not ever going to be great. Um, you, you've got to take the best land and put it with the grape that you want to make the best wine from. And I remember that distinctly going, maybe we just, we need to keep pounding at this thing and think more differently about it. And uh, the, the Willamette Valley community is one that comes together that that kind of bears it all and says like, how, how are we going to do this? Um, and it, I mean, I would say when uh, maybe, maybe since you've been here longer, you have a different, maybe a little bit of a different timeline, but particularly like the last 10 years have been really extraordinary for, for Chardonnay production. Um, yeah, I mean, the last 10 years has definitely been when Pinot Noir has finally hit its best stride and I don't think there's a lot of room for improvement in Pinot and I think winemakers are constantly looking for um more barriers to break and so Chardonnay was the obvious next thing even if we didn't even if there's more amazing Pinot Noir to always you can never know enough about it but we got to a point in the Willamette Valley where Pinot Noir was steadily really great quality and so I think that's the perfect time for another grape to make its um, kind of appearance and get a lot of attention so yeah it it's probably the last 10 to 15 years for Chardonnay for sure and it also coincides with more investment and more um more outside money coming into the Willamette Valley and really infusing what's possible here. I mean, back 30, 40 years ago, when people were making wine, they had to go to California to buy supplies and have things sent from France. And now that everything's more accessible, everybody's making better wines and you can really focus on more than one grape variety to really make the mark here. Yeah. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, Burgundy is more chard there's more chardonnay planted in burgundy than there is pinot noir you know and then there's an entirely other grape variety gamay noir and elegote so i think that there's you know to your point when that now that there's you know an established confidence and top of its game with pinot noir there is the ability for you know a, a relatively small family you know, focused region to now start to focus on other grape varieties that would work well here as well. And I think that's also why we're starting to see, um, you know, more interest in Gamay Noir being planted here, Aligote being planted here, Riesling, Syrah, you know, there's Cabernet Franc, there's a lot of Chenin Blanc, there's a lot of different grape varieties that are quite capable of being fine wine here in the Willamette Valley. And I feel like it's now that there's enough sort of collateral and people here to be able to further explore that. Um, and so it's exciting to be, you know, we're only what, a 55 year old region, you know, it's, there's a lot to continue to explore. Um, and that only happens when you have, you know, to your point, Andrew, that collective 
community of of people who want to focus on doing everything greatly um but the more people you have here you have the ability to you know really focus on a number of great great varieties for the region not just a single one not that pinot noir is going anywhere by any stretch of the imagination now's the time to talk about the resurgence of pinot gris yes <laughs> old vine pinot gris <laughs> old vine pinot gris <laughs> i feel like yeah i mean that's one thing that will distinguish you know great pinot gris from good pinot gris is age of vines and that's i mean any grape variety you could say that for yeah, uh, yeah. age of vines is very reflective in the quality of the wine you can have a teenage grape vine that's like 10 years old and it will never give you the same depth and complexity as a grape vine that's 30 years old. There is a question in the chat about, about talking about Pinot Blanc. I'm not entirely sure what to say about Pinot Blanc, uh, but having made a good amount of it, um, there's not a whole lot of acreage in the state um, mm -hmm. and that, that runs. I mean, if you're, if you're tracking the conversation about how many acres of Pinot Noir there in the state, and then you saw how many acres of Chardonnay there are, um, there's only one more grape that has more acreage than Chardonnay, and that's Pinot Gris at about 5,000 acres. Everything else is smaller than Chardonnay in terms of its planted acreage. Um, so while, of course, Pinot Blanc, like the grape varieties that Bree just mentioned that are white, certainly grows well here, um, we, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's one of those niche things that someone said, I'll, I'll have some Pinot Blanc. And so they planted it. And then someone said, I'll make some Pinot Blanc. And so they made it. Um, and, uh, that's about, that's about as much there can be. I do think on some level, uh, it's interesting. There wasn't a whole lot of Pinot Blanc, really, uh, real Pinot Blanc in the United States until the nineties. Uh, it was, uh, mislabeled as, uh, Milan de Bourgogne. Um, and so there, uh, there's, there was some confusion about that. And I'm sure we're all aware of the Merlot Carmenere fiasco of Chile. Uh, it's not quite to that extent, uh, but uh, uh, Pinot Blanc has really only been in the United States since the nineties. Oh, and, and uh, Brie, I saw you, you're dressing Cabernet Franc. I was gonna be like, you should talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I saw that question, I was hoping Brie would address it, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say that, um, yes, we've, I think since 2016 have, um, definitely ripened Cabernet Franc in the Willamette Valley and each year it gets easier um, and in fact in 2021 we ripened Grenache um, but one of the reasons why um, Cabernet Franc and some of those more um, leaf driven or green driven varieties actually do quite well here is because we do have extended UV light and we're able to open up the canopy and allow the um, UV light and photo degradation to happen on the berries. Um, so we're definitely starting to see more interesting Cabernet Franc and those types of varieties. You often find more greenness in um, Cabernet Franc or Cabernet Sauvignon from hot climates because they can't de-leaf their fruit zone. Um, they they really you know have to protect their fruit zone from not getting sunburned. So um, the gentle long summer days here in Oregon um, really give a unique style. But that's the that's really what the conversation is is that Oregon has the ability to grow and produce many fine wine styles. Um, it's not just a single, it's not just a single varietal conversation. Um, we just need the bandwidth and the people and the investment uh, and creativity and um, experimental 
you know, vibe to be able to do it, to continue that thought process. Um, and I think we're seeing it. And even we're seeing it in traditional varieties like Pinot Gris being made in different styles. Um, so there's definitely a lot of experimentation and a lot of really exciting um, opportunities here in the Willamette Valley that we're definitely starting to see develop. Um, so you're, you're just gonna have to come and visit and uh, find out for yourself, I think. <laughs> Um, and sparkling wine is definitely having a moment, absolutely, and I think we'll continue to do so. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's too much to go on about. There's there's really so much happening here at the moment, um, and sparkling wine is definitely really hitting its stride as well. When are, when are you making bubbles? Enjoy drinking bubbles too much to ever make it. You and I are <laughs> on the same page. <laughs> yep. No, it's one of those headaches that... It's so labor intensive to make, and I just and it requires specialty equipment and specialty all of that. I don't know. I want to drink other people's sparkling wine. <laughs> There's so many high elevation sites here in the valley to explore as well. I'm sure we'll start to see more of them being planted, and you know, future farming this might make sparkling wine to begin with, and maybe in. 10, 15 years from now, it'll be the optimum Pinot spots. Thanks, Bree. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, David. Yeah, great to see you all. And for everyone still hanging out, come come visit us. Come see us in Oregon. We've missed seeing you all. We know that May is Oregon Wine Month, but every day is Oregon Wine Month when, when you're here. Thanks, everyone, for joining me. I, I can feel the vine. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoytbud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Music is wine by Kevens. Until next week, slancha. I want to let you go right now.